Family law is often complex and multifaceted. Not surprisingly, it is an area where we continue to see professional negligence claims against solicitors in a number of key areas. In this program, Renee Stevens, Legal Risk Manager at Lawcover, and Christy Nunn, Director at Mullane and Lindsay, discuss the key risk areas in family law practice, the pressure points that present themselves in each area, and how you can manage this risk effectively. Hi, Christy. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, We're talking uh, today about risks in the area of family law and particularly where lawyers can find themselves in trouble in the context of their family law practices. So I thought we'd start by looking at some of the risks associated with binding financial agreements, which are an integral part of many family law practices. Um, What are some of the risks that lawyers should be uh, looking out for in this area? Um, Thanks, Renee. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Um, Financial agreements is a very apt area to start when we're talking about risks in family law areas um, because in respect of financial agreements under the Family Law Act, there's virtually every agreement carries with it some sort of risk. There's a range of circumstances in relation to preparation or advice in respect of financial agreements. Um, which causes there to be such a diverse factors for lawyers to consider. Yes. Um, and lawyers' role in that process is often open to challenge. Mm. And lawyers have to anticipate that the process will be under scrutiny. Um, so financial agreements are, of course, agreements that are entered into under the Family Law Act. And if they comply with the provisions of the Act, they can be binding. And that means that parties can um, determine by way of their agreement how their property and spousal maintenance provisions are to be dealt with in the event of separation with the effect of ousting the jurisdiction of the court to make different orders. Um, So in relation to financial agreements, um, the legislative provisions um, of most importance are in Section 90G of the Family Law Act, which sets out the requirements for the financial agreement to be binding, Mm -hmm. and Section 90K of the Family Law Act, which deals with the circumstances in which courts can set aside financial agreements. So practitioners who are preparing agreements or giving independent legal advice to parties to these agreements need to carefully consider the provisions of those sections of the legislation um, when acting in respect of a financial agreement. Now, the many claims um, relating to financial agreements, those claims include claims where the legislative requirements haven't been complied with and there's some complaint that that was as a result of some act or omission by the solicitor. Um, And we also see claims in the area of advice, um, and in particular, um, an allegation of failure to adequately advise. Mm -hmm. Now, advice is an important issue because one of the legislative provisions in order for a financial agreement to be binding is that each party, before signing the agreement, receives independent legal advice from a legal practitioner about the effect of the agreement on their rights and about the advantages and disadvantages at the time that the advice was provided to the party of making that agreement. Right, yes. Yeah, the independent legal advice is probably often an area that I can imagine would um, stumble people if they were trying to, say, cut costs or um, have, yeah, the one lawyer acting um, for them for multiple areas of their um, matter. Well, that's right. And um, there's certainly some cases about what is independence um, and there's decisions in which even a party who, whilst they technically see a second lawyer, um, if the other spouse party has 
arranged that appointment, paid for that appointment, attended with them at that appointment, the courts determine that that is not independent legal advice. Um, And why it's a risk area is because often clients approach lawyers um, and they say, I just need to get independent legal advice (laughs) about agreement. Can you accept those instructions? Um, And the lessons for lawyers and what that lawyers need to consider when considering whether they will accept those instructions are this is not a one-off appointment where I review a document and provide advice about it. Um, The circumstances of the parties, um, a lawyer has to take detailed instructions about all the relevant factors under the legislation prior to even accepting a retainer because if a lawyer does not do that and has a client sitting there who just wants to sign off on something, that's where there can be um, areas of concern and where claims can follow. Um, And we have seen so many claims where they arise from one-off appointments to provide independent legal advice in relation to financial agreements. In terms of getting the um, the that proper advice and um, other things that come up in the context of that, such as like um, uh, special disadvantages as between the the couple themselves. I don't know if that's an issue such as unequal bargaining power or um, cultural cultural issues that can come up. Yes, Renee, and a financial agreement is a contract, so contractual law provisions apply to the agreement, but there's also, as I mentioned, the provisions of Section 60K mm-hmm. and circumstances in which an agreement can be set aside. So um, a practitioner acting for a client in circumstances where there is unequal bargaining power or cultural issues needs to take all of those factors into account. Um, it's not uncommon that these agreements are in circumstances where one party has greater financial resources than the other or is in some other stronger positions, such as by virtue of their Um, English language skills or business savviness, any of those factors. Um, And lawyers have to know the principles about when when an agreement can be set aside um, if they're acting for the stronger party to take as many steps as possible to put that party in a position where their agreement will be binding. That will include things like making sure there's not time pressure um, in the entry into the agreement, making sure there's time for adequate financial disclosure, ensuring that... um, the stronger party provides access to business records, accounting records, um, so that there can be no suggestion that there has been a failure to disclose to a party entering into the agreement. Um, The language issue is very relevant um, in circumstances where English is the second language of a party. Um, In order for the agreement to be binding, they have to enter into it, and so that might involve things like ensuring that there's an interpreter available, not just for the conference in which the agreement is signed, but throughout the process, including the advice given by a lawyer to that person. And that could even extend to a translated document, a letter of advice. That all involves significant cost and time, um, but that would be the best protection for the client. So the lawyer should consider that and give advice to the client so that, that they have that option. Yes, I think there was a case on that, wasn't there? The um, New South Wales Supreme Court case of um, Rojik and Summer. Yeah, that case um, is about where um, solicitors in the area of um, they might be bilingual themselves, and it's common that if a solicitor speaks um, two languages, the client will go to that solicitor mm. for that reason. That makes sense. Um, but in that decision, um, the 
trial judge observed that interpreting and translating are highly skilled occupations and professional interpreters have a code of ethics that they have to adhere to and solicitors should really exercise caution um, when they adopt a position of both solicitor and interpreter. Um, and there's also the possibility that there might be some conflict of interest, particularly if there's a question about the nature or extent of the independent legal advice, that solicitor may find themselves in a position where they have to give evidence about what happened. Um, and so the best course would be to have an accredited interpreter and translator and to attempt to avoid the situation where a solicitor is adopting both roles. Yes. Is there um, anything else in the context of the binding financial agreements that, um, that we should be aware of? Um, well, it's a case that they are always a risk area. Virtually every agreement is open to challenge. So practitioners accepting instructions need to be aware of those risks, advise their client um, and it should be should be very cautious about ever saying that this is a binding financial agreement because they're a financial agreement which are intended to be binding, but they are subject to many challenges, including the um, basis of, under Section 90K mm. and also contractual law principles. Yes, so I suppose then that it's very important that they keep clear notes and um, detailed letters of advice on all relevant matters and uh, to also, also keep important to keep your records for longer than you ordinarily might yes. in these areas because the agreement could be entered into many many years and well um, exceeding the seven years in which solicitors usually retain their records um, so it's a prudent practice to not just keep a copy of the agreement mm. um, but also copies of the relevant file notes and advice um, for longer than would usually be required because yes. these claims can arise, you know, sometimes 30 years after the agreement's been entered into. Mm. So, yes, I guess uh, virtually every agreement that is drafted is at risk <laughs> of, uh, of of a challenge or um, or a problem later on, later on down the track. So practitioners should think carefully about accepting a retainer in this area if it's not their usual area of practice. Absolutely. Great. Well, um, another risk area that comes up in the context of binding financial agreements and also independently is spouse maintenance. So uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, spouse maintenance provisions are often included in financial agreements um, and it's, it's, they're provisions that usually fall towards the end of the agreement and it's like tick the box. Yes, we've dealt with the property upon separation. Now we'll look at spouse maintenance. But it's important for practitioners to be aware and give their clients advice in respect of the impact of Section 90F and Section 90UI of the Family Law Act. Um, those are the sections which preserve a party's right to make a claim for spouse maintenance if the court is satisfied that when the agreement came into effect, that party's circumstances were such that taking into account the terms and effect of the financial agreement he or she was unable to support themselves without an income-tested pension allowance or benefit. So um, spouse maintenance is something that often arises in circumstances where one party has an income stream and assets worth protecting and the other party may not be very employable or might be in a, at an age where um, they're caring for children um, and there, there will be an issue on separation as to support. If a 
companies not able to support themselves without a pension, um, there's an expectation that they will look after themselves from their own property and resources post-separation. But in those circumstances, a spouse maintenance release in a financial agreement is unlikely to be binding. Mm. Um, there's some recent cases which deal with this issue and, and demonstrate the points. Um, the first case is Millington, and that's a 2007 decision of the Family Court. Um, and in that case, the trial judge set aside the part of the agreement which included the spouse maintenance release. Um, in those circumstances, there was no dispute that the wife was in receipt of the New Start pension, um, but she owned a home which, which was in excess of $1.5 million. Um, so essentially, she was asset rich and money mm. poor. Um, and in that case, the court considered Section 90F and explained that the purpose was that people can't give away their obligation to maintain the other party with the effect of increasing the burden on the social security system. So the spouse maintenance release provisions in the financial agreement were set aside. Right. Um, the second decision um, in relation to this point is a 2019 decision of the family court in Fosse and Salvage. And in that case, the court had to decide, um, interpreting the legislation, what was the, when the agreement came into effect and was that at the time the parties entered into their financial agreement or was it at the time they separated? Um, the court determined it was at the time they separated um, and the practical effects on that for parties is they're entering into a financial agreement at a particular time um, but they can't say what the party's position will be in the future. Um, so you may be entering into an agreement at a time where both parties are in employment um, and the provisions, therefore, would satisfy the legislation and you consider you have an effective spouse maintenance release, but, in fact, circumstances occur following that after separation for some reason or another the party is unable to support themselves. Mm. Um, it is at that time that the agreement um, comes into effect pursuant to the legislation. Um, so spouse maintenance is just an area for practitioners when there's releases um, in the agreement to make sure they give adequate advice because a client, um, would, it would be reasonable for a client to consider that that applies then and based on the circumstances that they know it, but that's not the case. Yes, and their circumstances could be quite different at the time when they're actually trying to... Um, Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it also comes up, spouse uh, maintenance, um, I guess, in the context of spouse maintenance orders is also an issue. Yes. Um, so spouse maintenance is an area where um, orders are not that common, um, The but when they are made, um, they can have quite significant effect on parties. So um, there's two cases I wanted to talk about, um, just to give an illustration about how orders that are made can have a continuing effect on one party when they may not have anticipated that that might be the case, either at the time they consented mm. to an order or at a time when the court made that order. The first case is a 2019 decision of the family court in bodily and hand. Um, and in that case, there was a claim for spouse maintenance of $3,000 per week, which was indexed annually. The husband, who at the time when the wife made the application had been paying spouse maintenance for 17 years and he was well and truly over it. He wanted to retire from the workforce and he was suffering from cancer. He was 62 and the wife was 61. 
they had separated in 1998 and the wife was diagnosed with MS at that time and by November 2009 she was housebound. Mm -hmm. So at the time the order was made, the wife had MS, the husband had a good capacity, so the order was made for $3,000 per week indexed annually. The husband consented to that order um, in circumstances where it would it's very likely the order would have been made by the court. Mm-hmm. But after 17 years, his circumstances had changed. He remarried and he had two minor children. His, his new wife was also financially dependent on him. So after a contested hearing in 2012, he'd been ordered to pay the wife the $3,000 per week and he was also ordered to pay a lump sum of $120,000. An issue for consideration in that case was at what point is it no longer proper for the spousal maintenance order to continue? Is retirement or anticipated retirement a time where the court should look at reconsidering the order? The court was also considering whether is it appropriate to ask someone to liquidate their assets to pay spouse maintenance or not. In these decisions in the family court, they have a wide discretion and the legislation refers to concepts such as adequately, proper and reasonable. But ultimately, in this case, it was a mathematical exercise about what level of support this um, former spouse required in order and the spouse maintenance order was continued. Mm. Yeah, it's... um... I guess, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's that discretion on the court there and really, I mean, you just, <clears throat> how the circumstances change over time and, I mean, that, yeah, that's a really good example of that. Thank you. Um, there's also, I think, another case there that um, was worth mentioning of um, Blevins and Blevins. Yeah, that's a 2019 decision as well and I just mention it because it's another example of a spouse maintenance order which has a long tail um, and the relevance is that when orders are made, practitioners really need to give careful advice to their clients so that they're aware of this to avoid there being an assertion later that clients either consented into orders without um, full knowledge of what the effect of that might be Mm. in the future. Um, And also the relevance of this case is that there's a 12-month period to bring in an application for property settlement after divorce. Um, but in this case, the court determined that that doesn't apply um, when there is an order for maintenance in circumstances where there's been a previous order for maintenance, so mm-hmm. essentially a revival of an order. So um, the case involved an application for spousal maintenance by the wife and the application was made 22 years after they divorced. Um, the wife was 69, the husband was 71, but there had been an order made in, in 1999 which required the husband to pay the wife $750 per month yeah. until July 2009. But in the orders also provided that the wife was in at liberty to seek further payment of spousal maintenance. Now, you can understand why that order might have been included. Um, it's a way to, to potentially get a settlement over the line. You say, mm-hmm. oh, well, we'll just liberty to reconsider it later Um, and the effect in this case was that when the wife's circumstances changed she lost the ability to claim an age pension she was living off her superannuation um, and she brought an application um, to amend the child sorry the maintenance provisions and the judge found that the 12-month limitation from the date of the order did not apply to the matter where an order had been made in respect of maintenance of the wife 
in those proceedings previously. Um, so it's an important place to just demonstrate that issue about the spouse maintenance provisions and, and the significant effects that they can have on clients to ensure that adequate advice is given. So would that what would be the main message then for the takeaway in this area about um, spouse maintenance um, just ha after having a look at those particular cases, would you say? Yeah, well, spouse maintenance should not just be considered something that's um, an order that can be made just at the time for an interim period as, mm. as it often is because there can be, and there's not many cases, but there can be circumstances in which it has long-lasting effect for parties. Um, and whilst the orders provide, orders made under the Family Law Act for property settlement seek finality with respect to the um, financial relationship between the parties, spouse maintenance doesn't sit within that. Um, and there is risk that there can be an ongoing financial obligation by one party to the other yes. um, under maintenance provisions of the Act. Mm, right. Um, I guess another area that is a, a risk minefield in the context of family law is um, child support and child support agreements, particularly if it's not an area that uh, practitioners are experienced in. So what are the main things that we need to be looking out for in that area? Yeah, the child support legislation is very complex and um, Practitioners who act in child support matters should make sure that they have the time, um, all the resources available to ensure that they can either research the provisions if required um, or obtain advice from someone who is experienced in this area because they're not simple matters. Mm. Um, and we've seen lots and lots of claims in this area um, simply by virtue of the fact that um, the child support aspect of the whole family law matter hasn't been given the um, attention that was required, which had some serious consequences. Mm -hmm. So to give examples, um, some claims examples that I'm going to talk about um, where simple mistakes or um, failure to review the legislation and the effect of the two principal acts and the many sets of regulations has caused there to be a claim made against a solicitor. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we then just look at some examples of claims then in this area? Thanks, Renee. Um, the first claim example um, is a claim relating to child support when one of the parents resided overseas. And we've seen lots of claims in this area because it's an area where there's been lots of legislative change um, and it's practitioners really need to keep up with the up-to-date changes. Um, the first example is where the mother resided with the child in Australia and the father was a resident of the USA. Um, the solicitor who I acted for acted for the mother and the parties had reached a family law agreement um, and part of that agreement was in relation to child support, child maintenance for the one child. Um, the agreement they had reached was that there'd be a payment of $10,000 US per month for the child. Um, those orders were included in the overall property settlement and parenting orders that were made by the family court in December 2006. Mm -hmm. What happened? The father complied with those orders for seven years and paid his $10,000 per month um, until some point in mid-2014 when he decided to apply to the child support agency and his child support was assessed at $2,000 per month. Mm. The mother brought a claim against the solicitor and the key allegation was that the solicitor failed to adequately advise her in relation to formalising 
their agreement in 2006 for her to receive $10,000 per month until the child was 18 years of age. Um, by mid-2014, the child was then 14, so there was another four years. Yes. The issue in the claim was that at the time the parties entered into the family law orders, both the solicitors for the mother and the father believed that an application couldn't be made under Part 4 of the Assessment Act because the father was not a resident of Australia. Mm -hmm. And if you simply looked at Section 10, the definitions, and that act alone, that would be the conclusion that would have been formed. However, there were regulations which provided that a liable parent in a reciprocating jurisdiction would have been eligible to make an application through the central authority, the overseas agency. It was then necessary for the solicitors to go to a second set of regulations, the Child Support Registration Collection Overseas Related Maintenance Obligations, to ascertain that the USA was a reciprocating jurisdiction. So what happened was none of that happened. In 2006, the orders were made by the Registrar of the Court. The Registrar believed that they had jurisdiction and made the orders. Um, what happened was for a short period of time, the father didn't comply. The mother brought an enforcement application that went before the court and at no stage did anyone say these orders were made without jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. it really flew under the radar until yeah. 2015. Um, so in the claim, um, the, it was determined that the court didn't have the jurisdiction at the time. So there were some issues in respect of breach. Um, but there were some really interesting causation issues because we needed to consider, well, what options were there available in December 2006 right. to have an enforceable agreement for the payment of $10,000 per month? Um, they couldn't have entered into a binding child support agreement because Section 83 required both parents to be in Australia at the time. Um, and if they couldn't have a court order, what was the other option? Um, so the plaintiff's solicitors seemed to be learning throughout the claim on the job as well because mm. they changed case a number of times as to causation but essentially the claim that was pursued was well the solicitor should have advised the mother to apply to the agency for an assessment they would have assessed two thousand dollars and then the parties could have agreed to vary that by agreement which right. could have been impossible well what we said in response to that argument was well that's fine but no solicitor would have advised the client to do that because it was fraught with difficulty and posed serious risks because if it if there's an assessment for $2,000, there's no guarantee that the father will say, okay, well, I am assessed at $2,000, but I agree to pay you ten, so that's part of the agreement. So mm. um, that's Easy to make these arguments in hindsight too. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and in hindsight, even trying to work out what could have been done was very difficult and it's just an example of how complex yes. um, child support legislation is. Section 83 has now been amended. Right. Um, and enter into child support agreements where one party is overseas um, and even in that case there was an allegation that well as soon as the section was amended you should have told me to oh, enter gosh. into um, <laughs> but just a real example of um, how complex legislation yeah, it's is. Yeah very technical. That's right. Mm. Yeah this, what's the other example that you have for us? Yeah, it relates to some litigated pr proceedings about child support um, and in that case, the mother sought an application for DNA testing and an order pursuant to Section 106, Capital A, Subsection 5A of the Assessment Act that she was entitled to an administ 
strength assessment. So the respondent, who was the alleged father, he retained some solicitors to act for him in respect of that application. He got served with the process mm-hmm. and he went along and retained his lawyers to act. The facts were that have had a brief liaison in January of 2000 and a child was born um, in September of that year. Mm-hmm. In November 2000, so just after the child's born, the mother applies to the agency for an administrative assessment. Her application is rejected because she has no proof of parentage and such as no DNA test and none of the presumptions of parentage applied because the parties weren't married or any of the other presumptions did not apply. So between November 2000 and 2014, the mother does nothing and in 2014 she commences her court application and that application relevantly seeks a declaration um, in relation to parentage. So the client says to the solicitors, well, I'm definitely not the father, so of course I'll agree to a DNA test, happy to do that. The proceedings are adjourned, the DNA test happens, and the client's confirmed as the father. Mm -hmm. Following that test, it comes back, just um, the solicitors appear by telephone before a federal magistrate for directions. Federal magistrate says, okay, DNA test, say the husband's the father, sorry, the respondent's the father, and so then the federal magistrate just proceeded to make the declaration that the mother sought. What happened, though, was the effect of that declaration was that the mother was entitled to child support from the date she made her initial application, and that was in November 2000. Mm. That then creates an entitlement for arrears for the 14th new period, and it was over $150,000. So a claims brought against the solicitor, and... The allegation is that they failed to advise him that he could have opposed the declaration being made because the mother required leave. And um, if they'd done that, she probably wouldn't have been granted leave. So it was a case of a very junior solicitor didn't check the legislation and the effect of what the making of that declaration by the court would have been and certainly didn't give any advice to the father, the respondent. Yes. That if the court made that declaration he could be liable for back pay for 14 years. Mm. Yeah, so reviewing the legislation and the regulations uh, and is, is vital in giving advice to uh, clients in this area. Uh, and I suppose one of the messages to take away from this is don't accept instructions to act in a child support matter unless you uh, have the capacity and clearly the experience um, to carefully research uh, what's involved. That's right. Child support should not be considered just a part of the whole family law retainer. It's something that requires detailed attention. Yeah, sure. Well, before we finish up, we might just talk then um, about superannuation splitting orders. So what are the main risk messages that we'd like to get across in this particular area? So in superannuation splitting orders, they are commonly made um, in orders of the court or in financial agreements under the Family Law Act. So for practitioners, they need to ensure both in drafting and in advising clients in respect of the orders that they have the intended effect. Um, Particular caution needs to be exercised in relation to defined benefit funds. Those funds aren't regulated by Part 7A of the superannuation industry regulations. Um, And so practitioners, if there's an intention by the parties to split a defined benefit fund, they need to consider the proposed splitting order ensure that it complies with the governing rules of such a fund within those specific trust deeds. So that involves the solicitor obtaining copies of the trust deeds 
and mm. ensuring that the proposed split and the proposed orders will have the intended effect for the parties. Yeah. So is there an example of a claim that we can give in this area? Um, we have seen some recent claims in superannuation um, splitting. Um, one of the claims that I was recently involved with um, dealt with consent orders that had been made um, in the local court for a split of $210,000 and there was just an oversight by all parties and the splitting order was not served on the trustee of the fund. Mm. Um, the orders were made in 2006 and in 2014 the husband turned 60 um, and it was became known that the orders hadn't been served yet. So in 2014 the orders were served. The wife then, who was the party who was to receive the benefit of the super split in 2006, made a claim against her own lawyer um, and the husband's lawyer alleging breach of duty for failing to serve the orders in 2006. And the allegation of loss in that claim was the interest that the wife would have accrued over the eight-year period. Um, when we looked at that claim, um, the Family Law Act or the superannuation regulations um, don't specify precisely whose obligation it is to serve the trustee of the fund. So we obtained some expert evidence. That evidence was the effect that the husband's solicitor was not under any duty generally to the wife to affect service of the consent orders on the trustee of the fund. Yep. And Regulation 72 of the Family Law Act regulations imposes certain obligations on the recipient, so the non-member spouse, after the splitting orders made. Um, so the expert evidence was to the effect that the wife's own solicitor should have advised her about her obligations, at including serving the order on the trustee of the fund. Um, that didn't assist, obviously, in the claim against the wife, but um, it did assist in the claim against the husband. Mm. So um, the risk management tips in the area of superannuation Firstly, um, consider using a checklist or some other prompt to ensure that the trustee is served with a copy of the orders, even if you're not acting for the party who's receiving the superannuation split. My view is it's prudent practice to do that, to avoid any issues about costs, interest, transfer of funds later. Yeah. Um, one of the claims I was involved with, the trustee of the fund wasn't served. The husband then rolled over his funds into a self-managed fund and then later on those funds weren't available so um, if the trustee of the fund is served at the relevant time it avoids any later arguments mm. about whose responsibility it is or whose responsibility it can be for costs interest all of those factors in terms of working out whose responsibility it is to serve the the trustee it, it well, i mean it seems like such a small <laughs> point but it can obviously have such um, major ramifications. Absolutely um, and in the area of where the superannuation fund is a defined benefit or a self-managed fund it's not just a simple matter of deciding what the balance is and having a superannuation split. Mm -hmm. yep. There's a number of things a practitioner should do um, but Fundamentally, that's obtaining copies of the trust deeds, making sure there's been procedural fairness to the trustee, ensuring clients know that just because it's a self-managed fund, it doesn't mean that they receive immediate cash benefits when those funds are split. Yes. Um, the benefits are transferred into another superannuation fund. 
Right, yes. And I suppose, too, you do need to advise your client in terms of uh, getting advice, too, from their accountant or any other advisors that might be relevant, uh, not just from the, the lawyers in, in terms of um, the splitting of the fund. It's prudent practice to provide a copy of the proposed splitting order to the accountant and say, this is what we propose, please let us have your comments, um, because accountants, um, particularly in self-managed superannuation funds, will have had significant involvement in that and can give really insightful yes. comments. Yeah. Oh, that's yes. It's uh, there's certainly uh, so many things to be considered in in these areas. So thank you very much. Those are really great risk messages that we can um, take away in the different um, areas that we've covered in the context of family law. So thank you so much, Christy, for talking to us today. It's been really great. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Renee. Thanks for listening to Risk on Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.